Hey, future Nick. How's the holiday going? Or are you back? Uh, I think I might be back from it. Oh, was it good? It was great. <laughs> really? And, or bad. I mean, it's just kind of quantum holiday. It's, it's both states simultaneously at the moment. Oh, man. Do you know what you say that? I went to see Brian Cox the other day. Didn't I, did, I wanted to understand it. The pictures were very pretty on the screen, but mm. no, I didn't. Mm. But it was lovely. So, so in a quantum sense, where the holiday has neither started, but then again, it has finished. How many cocktails mm. would you say you had? Infinity. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's what it felt that like. Must anyway. have been like an inf- infinite hangover. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the downside. That is the downside. Well, it's a uh, a black hole. Is what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're sober enough, I reckon you could do a de- half decent introduction. Let's try. Okay. <laughs> And welcome to episode 213 of the Mid-Faith Crisis podcast. My name is future Nick Page and there in front of me is future Joe Davis. And may I say how much better you do introductions in the future? (laughs) (laughs) That was particularly marvellous. Well, you know, we're quite warmed up having just recorded the last podcast. And maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe maybe we should record a dummy podcast first mm. uh, so we get in our stride and then do the real thing. Maybe it just make the whole thing a lot more professional. It's a thought. You'd have thought, though, that might have already happened, wouldn't you? You'd have thought, I mean, we've done 212 episodes of this thing. You'd have thought that's enough of a warm-up to actually be professional. <laughs> you would have thought so. So there's no point asking you how you are. Because I'm asking you in the past. It doesn't matter, actually. I'm hoping that I'm really relaxed and uh, happy and, uh, yeah, chilled out. That's what I'm hoping. And how about you? Where will you be at this point? Uh, I think I will be probably uh, speaking. Yeah. Really? Or will I be leaving for America? I don't know. So, So just to say about this whole USA trip... And, and, you know, the evils of flight, which we have spoken about before. And, um, mm. you know, I genuinely was in a state where I was thinking I'm never going to get in a plane again. And suddenly here I am. Well, here's my excuse. So this friend of mine, lovely James Brian Smith, wrote mm. a book called The Good... Well, he wrote three books called The Good and Beautiful God and The Good and Beautiful Life and The Good and Beautiful Community. And bless him, he came over and stayed at my house and I said, you really missed a trick, didn't you? <laughs> I said, you, you really should have written the good and beautiful you because there are people who have all sorts of narratives about God, mm. but they fundamentally believe that they're rotten. And, mm. you know, they can have been in the church 30 years and still believe a whole load of rubbish about what they're really like. So, <laughs> like you do when you're being generous to authors, I've learnt that through you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well done on those three books, but you missed the most important bit. Well, anyway, about five years after that conversation, he wrote The Good and Beautiful You, which he credits me at the start. It's his conference, and he had always, and, and, and I had said, 
you know, he'd asked me, would I go and speak at the conference? Mm. And I said, well, yeah, I would. And then it was COVID and it didn't happen and blah, 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 yeah. blah, blah, blah. So that's done. And then I sort of, my views about travel have changed a bit, but I felt like I was committed to doing it. So that's my excuse. And mm. um, I, yeah, I feel moderately uncomfortable about it. But here we are in the States. And what's lovely is we get to see some friends as well. Or have I seen some friends? I'm not sure. Well, this is it. So I, I look forward to hearing. We'll try and contact you uh, when yeah. you're more out there than you are at the moment. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So okay. confused. Um, this is yeah. starting to get like the Brian Cox night now, I must admit. I'm confused. Space time, honestly. <laughs> um, well, I've certainly got to feel the gravitational pull of my tea. So we right. should get on. Yes, um, let's. So we have another interview for you, uh, we do. people. And uh, this is with Stuart Murray. Um, yes, indeed. Think, is that right? Stuart Murray Williams, to give him his full title. Mm. Who I met many years ago uh, when working at Oasis. And I guess that's yeah. how you met him initially. Um, and then you were, he was your tutor at Spurgeon, one of your tutors. He was. Spurgeon. Well, he was the main tutor, really. So mm. I spent a day a week. Uh, with Stuart and then it was like uh, you know a few half days uh, doing other little bits that weren't half as interesting as what he was teaching Mm. and so he is this amazing chap I mean he is Mr Calm and concise and considered he's basically everything I'm not he uses words sparingly he you know doesn't waste any words he's just like this very calm lovely uh, man and uh, mm. yeah no it, it, I've, I mean you know I know I'm always get kind of excited when I'm interviewing someone and go into fanboy uh, mode but genuinely everyone who's ever been taught by Stuart thinks he is just brilliant I mean we mm. it's a real privilege so we honestly felt every day like what a great privilege to go into college today and be taught by Stuart and all it, it wasn't just me that thought that way it was, it, we all thought that it was just fantastic so good times back in the mid nineties. <laughs> well, there you are. And talking of the mid nineties, the sound quality uh, is. Oh, I don't know what happened. A, I... a little shaky. I think it's his line more than anything else. Hey. Uh, it's and he probably has a pre-Christendom telephone. I imagine. <laughs> I think he probably does. Well, to be fair, we ran that. We ran that you know tin can with the bit of string tied to the bottom all the way from Worthing to his house. But still, the quality wasn't that great. No, amazing. <laughs> so there are a few glitches, but uh, I think there's a, there's some really good content in here. So yeah. let's listen to uh, Joe interviewing Stuart Murray. Well, this is uh, this is a first for me, and I'm really excited. I never dreamt that I would uh, get to speak to an old lecturer. Well, rather, that an old tutor of mine would ever want to speak to me, actually. But I'm really pleased to welcome to the uh, Midfaith Crisis podcast, Dr. Stuart Murray-Williams. Stuart, hello. Hello, Joe. Nice to see you again. I'll call you. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, you've aged a lot better than me, if I may say so. You're looking really good. <laughs> I not possibly comment on that, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you've still got a great head of hair, so that's good. Um, welcome. I, I mean, firstly, this is slightly belated, but for our, on behalf of all of our batch, thank you for those incredible years at Spurgeon's, which really uh, formed me. And I know there's a a few of us that listen to the podcast and uh, will want to send their good wishes to you. So I feel very privileged today. Thank you. Um, For the listeners here, 
every day going into here, Stuart, was a genuine privilege. We really look forward to it. I can't say we always look forward to all the Old Testament lectures and all that sort of thing, but the church planting and evangelism uh, lectures were the highlights of the week. So <laughs> thank you to you. <laughs> That's good to hear that. And I'm still in touch with quite a number of uh, those who were uh, at college with you, either in the years before or after, or even some of your own batch. And it's uh, really quite exciting to see what some of them are getting up to. They're doing some good stuff. So, yes, that's wonderful. And uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so, Stuart, the reason I was really keen to get you on the podcast is to talk about something that I think often isn't talked about very much outside of academic institutions. And yet seems to me because I learned from you, to have a profound impact on the church today. And that's this whole area of Christendom. Of course, you wrote your seminal book, Post-Christendom, um, some years ago, and I know you've continued to write on that. Um, so for the benefit of our listeners, could you just take a moment to explain to us, what is Christendom exactly? What do we mean by that phrase? I imagine you want the short answer rather than the book length one. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Fairly simple. Um, the word itself simply means Christ's domain, the uh, uh, area over which Christ rules. Um, but the way in which it's been used by historians and by theologians is to um, describe a, a way of being church in the world that was dominant in Europe for many hundreds of years. So go back to the beginning and you find that the church uh, was very much on the margins of society for the first three centuries. So from the time of the New Testament through until the beginning of the fourth century, the church was a marginal community, sometimes tolerated, sometimes not, um, but operating very much outside the structures of power. And then something strange and unexpected happened. The uh, Roman Emperor Constantine I decided that he wanted to identify as a Christian. And at that point, the church was invited to come in from the margins to the center and to form a partnership, so church and empire. Uh, later, church and the various states that emerged out of the, the breakup of the Roman Empire. And so it was a way of understanding what God was doing in the world with the assumption that God was going to work from the top down through the imperial structures and that that was going to Christianize society. And the word Christendom uh, or Christianitas, which was the Latin word, was used from about the ninth century onwards to describe what was emerging. And what was emerging was that Europe as a continent was effectively being perceived as being a Christian continent. So the boundaries of Europe were the boundaries of Christendom. Christendom was a society, it was a culture, it was a civilization, it was a political arrangement, it was an ideology. And it meant that the church had wealth and power and status and all kinds of uh, undreamt of opportunities. And looking back, historians have differed in terms of whether this was a good thing or not. Was this uh, the triumph of the gospel over the empire and an opportunity to Christianize the whole of society? Or was it the domestication of the gospel by the empire and the church being uh, corrupted by imperial values? And uh, historians still disagree a bit on uh, what we make of it. Mm, well, thank you. I mean, it's an extraordinary story of going from a, the sort of persecuted minority to suddenly the persecuting majority. Um, that's that's quite quite a tale, and something I was quite ignorant of actually before I before I came to Spurgeon's all those years ago. Well, I, I think it's part of the story that often isn't known very well. We often tend to jump over from the New Testament to the last fifty years and assume that nothing very much interesting happened in between times, or possibly the Reformation. But of course, the Reformation was the Reformation of Christendom. It was a system that for a thousand years had been there and assumed 
and then the reformers came along and began to ask questions about it but actually the reformers themselves didn't do much in terms of Christendom they looked to improve it to reform it but actually they operated within the same basic structures it was only really the more radical reformers uh, both before and after the 16th century uh, who began to ask serious questions about whether the system itself was a problem rather than it just being a system that could be improved. But yeah, going back to the fourth century, when all this happened, I think it took the church completely by surprise. There's almost no indication anywhere before then that they ever thought this might happen. And so I think the fourth century church leaders were suddenly faced with this amazing challenge, opportunity, question. Do we get into bed with the emperor? What are the advantages mm -hmm. to be? What's going to cost us? Uh, I think they made some poor decisions, but I have every sympathy with them. I'm not sure I'd have made a different decision in the fourth century. Mm -hmm. Um, but it has had all kinds of ramifications. So, yeah, you mentioned that, and I sort of want to talk about power and control, and maybe this is the place to do it, but what for you do you think was the, is the lasting impact? I mean, what, do, what are we sort of still feeling even in the, the, the 21st century as a result of that time, do you think, in terms of our churchmanship and how church operates? And... I think the term post-Christendom <clears throat> was first used somewhere in the middle of the 20th century. And so we're now sort of 60, 70 years on from when people were beginning to suggest that the Christendom environment is changing, that the Christendom system is beginning to disintegrate. And I don't think that's gonna happen suddenly, uh, just as the emergence of Christendom took several centuries, what happened in the fourth century was really just the beginning. I think we are in the midst of a seismic shift in terms of the relationship between church and, and culture, church and society. And by the way, we are talking primarily about Western culture. Mm. Uh, other parts of the world haven't had the same story and it's important we don't impose that on them. This is a, a part of the Western European story, really. Mm. And the Christendom legacy is profound and will persist for a long time yet. Um, and there are positive benefits of it. I mean, the Christianizing of society, even though it was uh, sporadic and some people would suggest very thin in many ways, uh, nevertheless has left a huge impact in terms of values and structures and systems. Uh, Christendom wasn't all bad and um, I'm one of those who uh, I'm quite glad it's on the way out. Uh, I think mm. there were tremendous opportunities in post-Christendom um, but it wasn't all bad. There were many things that were positive but it has left a legacy of the church being perceived as one of the pillars of society uh, mm. with power and influence and status and wealth and for much of the time, it was corrupt and it was brutal. Uh, it was mm. a totalitarian system. So if you dissented, if you didn't believe the right things or behave in the right way, you were in real trouble. Um, and it wasn't just that the church no longer suffered persecution from the fourth century onwards. The church itself became a persecuting machine. The church yes. began to be the persecutor. So it was a sea change. And, and how, as I was going to say, how how did that impact the sort of radical non-violent teaching of Jesus? Because my understanding, I think, from, from you is that actually that was a very key tenant of Christian faith up until the fourth century. Yes, I mean, the word changes over those 300 years, um, but certainly all the evidence we have suggests that certainly towards the end of the second century, um, a commitment to non-violence, refusal to participate in warfare was pretty much universal. The expectation was that um, if you were involved in the army, if, if that was your occupation, um, you could remain there because the army did all sorts of things. It was a bit like a fire service and mm. all sorts of things, but you shouldn't be killing people anymore. The mm. killing was incompatible with what Jesus said about loving your enemy. I mean, it, 
when you say it like that, it just sounds obvious. <laughs> it is a bit. <laughs> but as, as, as things moved on, as the church began to grow, and as the uh, crit critics of the church said, well, it's all very well you being nonviolent, but actually you benefit from the protection of the empire. You need to play your part as well. That began to hit home, and Christians began to ask the question, well, maybe, maybe there are ways in which we can be followers of Jesus, but also be involved in uh, protecting the empire. But again, it was the fourth century, it was this Christendom shift that made a big difference, because now you have a supposedly Christian empire to defend. I mean, if you were a Christian community on the margins of a pagan empire, why would you want to defend it anyway? But now it supposedly is a Christian empire, you sort of feel responsibility for it. And the, um, the result was that a very clever theologian called Augustine um, drew heavily on classical pagan sources and developed something called the just war theory, which essentially mm. said that there are certain circumstances in which going to war is not only legitimate, but actually required. Um, and that it is perfectly possible to love your enemy and kill your enemy at the same time. It's mm. all the motivation. It's nothing like a loving killing. Well, you know, if you read his writings, uh, he's wrestling with this. You know, he mm. really does believe that um, the teachings of Jesus should be taken seriously, but he's trying to deal with the real politic of his day. How do we square the teaching of Jesus with this new empire? Mm. The difficulty, and I understand that, the difficulty he had was that Jesus had given no guidelines for running an empire. You know, mm. it was, really, was a bit of a mistake, I think. You know, surely <laughs> there's something about what you do when the emperor gets converted, what you do when you've got an empire to run, the economy to run, borders to defend, but sadly there's nothing. And so what Augustine and others did was to look, particularly at the Old Testament, for guidance, because there you've got Israel, which has an economy to run, borders to defend, and a priest and a king, very much like the Pope and the Emperor. And there was a shift from the new to the old uh, to find mm. guidance for this new empire. And that led, sadly, to the marginalising of the teaching of Jesus, which was just too radical uh, to be, be useful. Yes, I mean, I remember one famous day in class when uh, it was, I think it was an off-the-cuff remark of yours about tithing, but you really stirred it up because we all thought as good Christians, tithing was a very biblical and seemingly uh, good thing to do until you, you pointed out to everyone on this famous day, <laughs> there's a complete bur unfair burden to put on some people and a complete cop out for rich Westerners, <laughs> as we were all hoping to be back then. You know? So I, I mean, do you want to say a little bit about, you know, how do you make that shift to empire? And how, how do you get ordinary people to behave like the sort of radical Christians of the day? I think what happened in the fourth century was that the advantages of imperial support, of imperial funds, imperial opportunities persuaded most people, most Christian leaders, that this was worth going for. That in spite of the compromises, in spite of you know, the things that were difficult to get, that actually this was a price worth paying. There were objections, there were people then and later who said this is a price too high to pay. Probably this is one of the key reasons why monasticism developed. So what you have in monasticism is a search for a more radical form of faith, a more radical kind of discipleship that is not in hock to the empire in the same way. And throughout the next centuries, there were radical groups, there were dissenting movements who again and again said, look, this is not the way. Uh, we have got to be free of state control. We've got to be free to be uh, true disciples. And the tithing thing is perhaps a classic example. I can for England on tithing, having written the whole book on not tithing. <laughs> essentially, I would argue that it's biblical but not Christian, you know, that there is a biblical wow. basis for 
in the Old Testament, but it's part of a complex economic system which has at its heart the liberating practice of Jubilee, the rip tithing out of that context, and it becomes oppressive. It is, as you've indicated, far, far too much for many people who are poor and far too little for those of us who are rich. Uh, it's a regressive form of tax, and it became compulsory during Christendom. Uh, it doesn't square, it seems to me, with the teaching of Jesus. You can't find examples of it as far as I can see in the first 300 years. It was not the way that Christians organised their giving, uh, but it was something which Christendom introduced as a way of paying for this enormous system that was developing. And there have been protests against tithing throughout history. Many of the dissenting groups um, said, you know, we shouldn't be doing this. There is a better way. And it's about community. It's about justice. It's about ways of organizing our resources that are much more liberating. Mm. Mm. And I wonder if you just want to say something about patriarchy uh, in this context as well, because that was something we looked at. And, you know, it's always difficult, isn't it? Men talking about patriarchy and, you know, middle class white men do not have a glorious history, do we, uh, in the church? Nonetheless, I feel like it's important. I know if Rachel was here, she'd like you to talk about it. So uh, what happened when we sort of rediscovered the priesthood again? And what do you think was the impact on, on, on the gospel then? I don't think that we can blame Christendom entirely for the issue of patriarchy. Um, I do have a tendency to blame Christendom for almost everything, but <laughs> actually there are deeper roots to patriarchy than that. Um, clearly in the New Testament, there are some very liberating um, teachings and practices, and women and men working together in partnership in a way that was really quite revolutionary. But it also seems that the, um, the seeds are there for an ongoing uh, patriarchy, and I think that continued through the, the next two or 300 years. But I think it was exacerbated, like so many other things, it was exacerbated. Mm would happen in the fourth century and the the dominance of um, men within the church as well as well as within society was very strongly established and i guess it's, for me it's one of the hopes that i have as we move out of christendom that we will move beyond that that we will begin to challenge that among many of the legacies of christendom and recognize that actually partnership between men and women is a far healthier way for for church life and for society um, so i don't i don't think it's a a legacy of Christendom by itself, but I think Christendom certainly um, centred it and strengthened it. Um, a colleague of mine has written a book called Women and Men After Christendom, which um, really probes that in significant uh, ways. Mm. And if people, if your listeners are interested in that, I'd, I'd recommend that by Fran Porter as an opportunity to explore that in, in, in greater depth. Okay, so, so this thing happened for good or for bad, uh, in the fourth century, we, we, we are identifying, and I suppose we will still argue a little bit about its impact. But I wonder from your perspective, um, what do you feel like, uh, you know, here we are, it's, it's 2022, it's a, it's a bold new world. There's been a, a whole technological revolution. In fact, you know, I think I only had my first email address when I came to college. I mean, that's that's what's happened in our lifetime. I wonder what you think the church uh, faced with, you know, all that's gone on in culture needs to recover from the past, perhaps. Um, you know, where's, where's this heading? What, if anything, from our kind of radical roots do we need to rediscover? Yeah, that's another huge question, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, it is. sorry. <laughs> I guess I would um, argue that post-Christendom is 
one of a number of different posts that we need to grapple with. And so it's actually quite complicated. Uh, postmodern, of course, has become very familiar. Um, but we're also hearing language of post-secular, which I'm finding quite interesting, that we're not um, becoming the same kind of secular culture that was predicted 50 years ago, that actually we are a mixed bag of uh, different religious and secular options across our society. It's a kind of mosaic, really. Mm. And I think part of the challenge is for the church to, to find its place within that. Um, and at times that will mean being countercultural, um, but countercultural in a mosaic culture is quite tricky because if you're counter one part of the culture, you may not be part of another. Yeah. So I think it's an interesting and difficult time in terms of steerage. Um, one of the things that we must do is to accept that we are a minority within a non-president culture. Um, right. Book that I wrote subsequently has the sort of the strange title, The Vast Minority. And what I was trying to say in the book and by the title is to say, we have to accept that we are now a minority on any measure, whether it's mm. attendance, membership, participation, influence or whatever. But we are still actually quite a sizable minority. Uh, we might still 10% of the UK population. Not that many go to church regularly, but if you have a broader measure of the Christian community, you know, possibly one in 10 which is roughly the same as it was at the beginning of the fourth century, when mm. roughly one in 10 of the empire, roughly six out of 60 million, uh, would have identified as Christian. So in one sense, we're almost back where we were before the, the Christendom shift. Um, mm. although we're now talking about UK rather than Europe, but be, being a minority has all sorts of implications. And the mm. difficulty we have, I think, and the challenge is we're not just any kind of minority, we're an ex-majority minority. Mm. Yeah, and sure. that a significant shift. So in many other parts of the world, the Christian community has always been a minority community. That's part of its identity. We are used to being a majority, a dominant majority. Mm. And the shift to being a minority is huge in terms of our structures, our organisation, finances, ideology, theology. There's a huge journey there, I think, which I suspect we've only just started on, really. Um, but it's left... And many of our institutions, many of our congregations wrestling with the legacies of the past, you know, buildings that are not fit for purpose, uh, programs that are way too busy for a, a smaller congregation, uh, all kinds of things that are just unnecessarily competitive. Joe, you know, you, you uh, studied at one of the Baptist theological colleges. There are four Baptist colleges in England. That is way too many. You know, it's ridiculous to have four independent Baptist colleges training a relatively small number of Baptist ministers. One really good Baptist college would be enough. Hmm. I've said that in many places. I think it's scandalous. That'll it make you popular. <laughs> well, absolutely. But I think it's scandalous. I think wasting all this money and eventually two or three of them will go to the wall because yeah. financially they will survive. And at that point, we'll be down to one or two. If we do something now, we could actually make better use of the resources. Uh, no, I recognise that all four Baptist colleges will think of good reasons why it shouldn't be them that closes, um, yeah, but it's that sort of thing. Um, you know, dealing with grant-making charities, they are tired of having so many different charities applying for funds who are all doing roughly the same thing. It's mm. just a waste of resources. And it's that kind of thing that yeah. part of this legacy, when we were big, when we were powerful, when we were influential, we could cope with some of those things. We need to cut our cloth differently. We need to learn to be... Mm minority on the margins, a prophetic minority rather than the moral majority. Yeah. Well, I, I confess I don't know how many churches are uh, 
actually open now in Worthing. There's a fair few empty buildings around and ones that are nightclubs and ones that are restaurants and bars. But I mean, what about that whole thing? What about towns working, you know, together and closing some of the churches, which are struggling? You know, they may just have a handful of people rattling around this huge building or vast resource, depending on how you uh, think of it. I mean, could you ever see churches working together in that way? I would give a whole new role to churches together, wouldn't it? Well, it would, and um, I have some uh, hope that ecumenism might go local. Um, there's been an enormous effort towards ecumenism at a, a kind of high level over the last hundred years or so. Um, and that's made some progress, but it's also been very, very slow and stodgy. I think uh, the potential for a, a local missional ecumenism is much greater. Um, and there are some encouraging mm. signs, I think, of that, um, where churches are working together out of necessity. Um, hopefully out of conviction as well, but recognising that actually it is rather stupid not to be doing things together when we are, it's, it's part of this transition from majority mm. to minority. Mm. It doesn't make sense to compete in a, in a local town context. Um, far more than we can do together. And as I say, there are some good signs, there are some hopeful signs of where that's happening, but there's much further to go. Great. And if people want to find out more about this, what would you suggest? I mean, you, you mentioned a vast minority. Uh, one of your books still available, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's hopefully fairly easy reading. Uh, Post Christendom was reissued mm, three or four years ago in a slightly updated version. So and mm. um, that's another possibility, although that takes a bit more of a read, certainly. Mm. But, you know, you, you said at the beginning that um, the notion of Christendom was largely within academic circles. And that was certainly true for, mm. for some time. I think that's changing. I mm. think that um, the concepts of post-Christendom is becoming more familiar in many mm. churches. Certainly as I teach on that subject, increasingly I'm finding people are familiar with mm. these, uh, the basics of sort of things we're talking about uh, in this conversation. Uh, and that's hopeful as well. People are beginning to grapple with the issues, beginning to realise some of the implications of that. Um, mm. so, yeah, I would. We, we have a whole series uh, under the rubric after Christendom. I think there are 15 or 16 books mm. in the series now. So. If anybody is interested in exploring the topic, there are mm. a range of different uh, writers and, and subjects mm. with it that people can, can, can pursue. Faith and politics, youth work, women and men, hospitality, yeah. relationships, a whole, a whole range of things really. Look out for them. That's wonderful. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd, you'd like to say to our listeners listening at home, pondering this now? What, what is there anything else you'd like to say to them? I, no, I think I've probably said enough, Joe. <laughs> me i can go on and on um, for a long long time but uh, i think probably we've covered the bases well listen i am so grateful to you thank you so much for taking time i know you have a busy diary i i really appreciate it thanks uh, thanks for everything you've done for me personally and now for blessing our listeners as well it's hugely appreciated Stuart. thank you great good to talk to you well that was uh, joe talking to Stuart murray uh, about christendom christ's domain yes that's that's something that's remained with you actually for a long time, hasn't it? Because it's not the first time you've heard this. Obviously, you heard it <laughs> thirty years ago. Yeah. But uh, why has that had such an effect on you? Do you think? Because I, I mean, I felt he was being quite generous, and he seemed to be far more kind of generous to Christians of that period than I remember. But what I certainly perhaps he's calmed down. Ah, I think perhaps he has because he, he, he yeah. as he says he blames Christendom for pretty much everything. But I think that's when the rot set in initially. Um you know this radical 
bunch of people who were following Jesus, who were just so generous and so uh, their lives were turned so upside down. It became this sort of it, well, it became a religion. It became a comfortable religion, I suppose I would say then. And then it kept, went from a persecuted minority. Uh, and they really were, as, as you well know, um, me telling you mm. about the persecuted church. That's hilarious mm. um, to, you know, actually becoming part of an empire that did the persecuting. I mean, it's just awful how it has shifted our perspective. And I think that we now read the Bible from this Christendom perspective. And actually, we, we try to need to understand it not in that perspective, I often think. So I think it's a massive thing. And um, I'm very grateful to Stuart for teaching me uh, about it. What, mm. what strikes you about Christendom or, or the interview or, you know, what he well, was Well, it's obviously it's a field that I know a, a little bit about. Um mm. And I, I think there's a number of things. I think one of the things that Christendom did, one of the things, that, or becoming this sort of an official religion and then sort of the official religion after that, I'm, I'm not sure it, it changed the human behaviour radically within the organisation of Christianity. I just think mm. it gave it more opportunities to be, you know, a, a, a bigger scale. <laughs> That, that's what I mean. yeah. you know I think within that there's enough evidence I think before uh, Constantine to f to find Christians not being particularly Christ-like to each other okay. actually uh, it's it's sporadic but it's there because they're a much smaller group then mm. um, so I think the tendency of any religion whether it's a persecuted minority or whether it's a a, a what's he called a you know a, a large minority or whatever mm. it's called. Um, or whether it's a whether it's persecuted minority or whether it's this sort of official mm. religion of the kingdom, anything has the capacity to offer roots to power for people, you know, and and for them to abuse that. Yeah. yeah. And what what becoming the official thing does, and with all the wealth and all that stuff, is suddenly the scale of it is so much bigger, and you've got an army mm. to do stuff for you as opposed to you know yeah, yeah. small numbers of people, you know. So. I personally don't think you can blame everything purely on the idea that it became this this mm. big uh, this big thing. And I think there's a constant reevaluation going on amongst historians about the effect of Constantine. Mm. I think though where Stuart's absolutely right is now we're moving to a, a case where we are no longer the dominant majority. How do we react to that? Yeah. Well, and, and, and firstly, which is sort of slightly takes us back to um, the last interview with Oliver Berkman, you know, face reality as it really is now. I, I sort of feel some of us are still in a little bit of denial that we are the minority. We're not mm. in power. So, you know, and even some of the songs we sing have this sort of triumphalistic kind of army onward Christian soldiers type feel that doesn't feel particularly appropriate, I think, um, now. Well, I think one of the interesting things, and this is what I'm trying to write about at the moment, is, yes, we're an ex-majority minority, as he put it. That's, yes, that's brilliant. Yes. That's a really good way of putting mm. it. But we're 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 a minority in in a world that has been entirely shaped by our beliefs. Mm. You know, we're a, we're a minority in a in a world shaped by Christendom. Yes, and uh, as as historians like Tom Holland have shown, most of what we take for granted in our society as sort of Western values come from Christendom. Mm. 
So with its good and its bad, you know, yes, it delivers a lot of uh, abuse, but it also delivers hospitals and schools. Yeah. They come out of Christendom. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it delivers the idea of human rights. That comes out of Christendom. The idea mm. of international law is something that based in yeah. Christendom. Sure. So, so, you know, I think that, that what's interesting for us is now, how do we sort of keep reminding people, well, whatever your thought patterns are, they were shaped partly, at least, or majorly by the Christian faith. Um, and I think that's a really interesting and challenging position to to find ourselves in. But but I still I still think no I well, I think what you've just said is really really helpful and important for us to remember that. But I also think sort of in yes yes I, our faith has has once shaped the world we live in and and often for great good as you've just pointed out. But also we are a minority now, so I think it's helpful for us to ditch some of the vitriol that went with being the dominant majority and you know I often think we lost sight of sort of persecution um you know because we were the mighty one we were God's people and we were on mission and we were taking the land for Jesus yes. and everything. there wasn't much talk of persecution now no. we're a minority we might actually face a little bit of that which might not I mean bad as that sounds might not be such a bad thing for the overall um, brand, I suppose. No, uh, I think of... so. I mean, I think the big thing. Well, there's two. There's there's one danger. Well, there's many dangers. But one of the main dangers is, you know, when people are faced with losing position, prestige, influence, mm. and all the things that they they think they value like that, then they become more extreme and not less, and they lash out. You know, and mm. I think we yeah. see that in some societies. Fortress mentality. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's the basis of fundamentalism. Actually, is mm. is that fear. Uh, but I think it offers this great opportunity to rediscover Jesus. I love the irony in that, you know, that, that, that it was ironic that the triumph of Christendom marginalised some of the teachings of Christ. Yes. <laughs> it actually yeah, made yeah. them harder to put into place. <laughs> um, and and so I think we, we, we're we talking about rediscovering Jesus the whole time, and mm. I know that's the theme of the podcast as well. Um, and, and that will lead to, you know, what he was talking about, ecumenism. Yes, and, um, yeah. Yeah, he said ecumenism. Ecu, I can't even say it. He said it better than I did. Ecumenism has gone local. Mm. Uh, might go local rather. He said, "I think ecumenism has already gone individual, because I think actually many individuals draw from all kinds of traditions now." Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think that as you put Jesus center, you can actually draw from different traditions because the 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 other the hinterland becomes less important. But I found that really a, 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 an interesting point. Yes. And I, you know, my hope is that, you know, ex accept us learning to accept our minority position might might just have the effect of giving us a bit more humility in the world, which I don't think would be such a bad thing. Um, but I, I liked what he was saying there about ecumenism and, 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 you know, what he said about the Baptist colleges. I mean, I know mm. for a fact they... Yeah, while I was at Spurgeon's, they were struggled financially. They got amazing people in charge who, you know, seem to work miracles with the finances. And I assume it's the same for the other Baptist colleges. But thinking about it, it is crazy. And I've often thought that about towns. I think in Worthing, I think we had 90 churches at one point. Some, mm. some crazy amount of churches. And you just think, well, that just seems silly. I bet all of them are trying to run a Sunday school or trying to do some youth work or trying. You just think. How can that be right? And with the context we're in now, we've 
surely got to readdress that. But will people have the humility to go to one another and say, hey, listen, we're all struggling here. Let's let's do something radical together. Or will they just allow it to run themselves? Will pride mean they just run themselves into the ground and die out? I I know what I suspect might happen, but I hope <laughs> I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we, things might have to die before they resurrect. That seems to be a, I think a, so. a rule of Christian life. Um, anyway, interesting times and an interesting interview. And thanks very much for, for doing that. Um, so we should we should wrap up and get back to whatever life it is we're living at, at the moment. It's confusing, isn't it? It's very confusing. Thank you for bearing with us, everyone. Um, if you don't understand where we are in the world, we definitely don't. But no. um, there Mind we you, are. that's that's true when we're recording week by week. <laughs> Sadly, it probably is. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. Uh, thank you for supporting the podcast. Uh, if you wish to write in about anything, write in to... Joe at midfaithcrisis.org. And, and we'd love to hear from you. Yeah. And we'll be back in two weeks uh, with... I have no idea. I think an interview... I think we're talking to you live from America, I hope. Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's Whatever. say, yeah. Yeah. Is it two weeks or will it only be a week? I don't... I, I don't understand. Maybe mm. there's a gap. Yeah, okay. Two. Let's say two weeks. More professional podcasts would have bought a calendar. <laughs> but... I don't know. They're pretty expensive and they're not necessary. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> bye everybody and we'll be back soon. Yeah, thanks for bearing with us. Bye. Bye. <laughs>